Welcome to episode 29 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This week, it's eyes westward as we take a look at the Justice Center's charter analysis of Canada's most westerly province, British Columbia, and its public health response to the COVID-19 crisis. That analysis is wrapped up in a report called Benefits Assumed, Harms Ignored. BC was hit earlier than the rest of Canada, but the province's response mostly parallels that of other jurisdictions across the country. They've received high praise from certain quarters for their actions, and some of that might be warranted. But then again, it might be that we're talking about the best of a bad lot, and we're assuming benefits and ignoring the harms, as the title suggests. First of all, John, I'm going to give you a chance to come clean. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Bonnie Henry Fan Club? I have not. <gasps> Shock! Ever. Ever. Oh, okay. All right. No posters of her on your wall? Okay. Yeah, for the listener's benefit, those who are not from Canada or British Columbia, this is the Chief Medical Officer in British Columbia. And in recent weeks, there have been glowing articles about all these people expressing great adulation uh, in uh, respect of uh, Bonnie Henry's calmness and coolness, but yet her empathy and compassion and emotion. And uh, she's cried at least once uh, during uh, one of these uh, First press death, conferences. I think it was, yeah. It's in the new, it was in the New York times. Yeah. I'll put, I'll post a link to that one that uh, I think that's why it became such a big thing because it got into the New York times. And we're Canadians, and any time we get mentioned in the States, we're like, oh, my gosh. Anyways. <laughs> well, Bonnie, Bonnie Henry is like the other chief medical officers, has not answered uh, any of the questions that I asked three months ago. In April, I asked mm -hmm. about the impact, the negative impact of the lockdowns, what, uh, what modeling or predictions or research have you done on anticipated increases in drug overdose deaths, which has been a huge problem in British Columbia, and increases in anxiety and depression and stress and suicide and spousal abuse and child abuse and family violence? And what about needing money to pay for health care? And the money's not going to be there when you destroy the economy or when you severely damage the economy and you, you uh, hike unemployment up to astronomically high levels and uh, we acquire all of this debt and we get into a place where, you know, a third of our tax dollars are going just to pay for the debt servicing costs on the federal trillion and the, you know, provincial billions that have been borrowed. Uh, where are you mm -hmm. going to get the money for healthcare? No, yes. no answers from Bonnie. Henry. And you know, that's, that's okay. The point is not what are, are, are they responding to my letters of, of April the 15th? That's not really the point. It, it's, it's okay if they don't respond to the letter. What is not okay is that they're not answering the questions generally. And mm -hmm. we never hear the uh, chief medical officers talking about uh, the deaths from canceled surgeries. You know, how many people in BC have died because they were supposed to get uh, heart surgery to get a pacemaker installed. And Bonnie Henry decreed that that was not medically necessary or not essential and canceled the surgery and the patients died. Uh, I'd like to hear her talking about that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they did talk a little bit about some of the, well, they didn't really treat it as the fallout. They, there was a, you'd mentioned the drug deaths in BC. Always, well, it's been a problem for a few years now. And in May and June, we see that they've had the highest number of fentanyl overdoses, deaths ever there. Uh, and each month, I think one month exceeds the total of the people that have passed away from COVID-19. So, uh, yeah, they, we did see them talk about that. They didn't relate it to the lockdown. However, I don't see how you couldn't uh, make that assumption unless, of course, they just keep going up and up as time goes by. Well, how, how can it not be related? I mean, how is that possible? People fall into addictions of which there are many kinds, be it uh, alcohol, be it various different kinds of drugs. When people fall into into addictions, the way out of addiction is face-to-face support through a 12-step program is often very effective for people. And employment, so you have a sense of uh, meaning and purpose in your life, which we need. We're not you know, we're not cattle. We're not sheep. We're, we're human beings. We need meaning. Uh, we need fulfillment. And for just about everybody having some form of work and, and need not even be paid work. I mean, you could be a, a full-time, uh, full-time stay-at-home dad or full-time stay-at-home mom. You're working. You have meaning in life. Well, when you, when you harm the economy and when you force people into isolation, you're, uh, why would you be surprised to see increases in alcoholism and increases in other drug addictions? And then the more addictions you have, the more deaths you're going to get because the, the, the death from a drug overdose is kind of an extreme example of, you know, the ultimate bad manifestation of an addiction. And we, we, there was one case in particular. This, this came out of Ontario. There was a, a young man in his thirties uh, and he had been a drug addict. And he had gone into a rehab program. He was doing really well. He had completed the rehab program. He was in 12-step support program with Narcotics Anonymous. And I think he went to other 12-step programs. And a lot of these people work together and go to each other's meetings. He was connected to friends. Um, and, and let's not pretend that, that Zoom and Skype are adequate substitutes for face-to-face contact. Cause, cause they're not. We all know it. Uh, we, we've seen studies in, in the, the recent decades where children are experiencing huge levels of anxiety because they're spending their days staring at a screen rather than uh, looking, getting together in person and looking at each other face to face. The interesting thing is the kids who were connecting in person uh, and also spent a lot of time staring at their screen, whether the computer screen or smartphone or whatever – the ones who were connecting in person were doing fine. Okay. So the, <laughs> as long as you're mm-hmm. connecting in person, if you have, if you have a lot of added on screen time, that's not that bad. But the, the, the kids that were only plugged into their uh, screen that are not connecting in person, they're not meeting, uh, it's just high levels of anxiety and insecurity and, and unhappiness. So to suggest to recovering drug addicts that they can just, you know, meet by Zoom or Skype and that that's just, going to be as good. That's ridiculous. And yet this is what Bonnie Henry and in Alberta, Dina Hinshaw and federally, Teresa Tam and so on and so forth. In every province, these chief medical officers have thrust people into isolation. And uh, how, how could that possibly not result in more deaths from drug overdoses? Yeah. It's uh, well, interestingly, they, they held a press conference on this and they blamed the, uh, 
the drug overdoses on the quality of the supply. In other words, they were arguing for legalization. If we can get everybody better drugs, they won't be dying from fentanyl. It seemed like a lobby group just sort of, you know, giving them a nice diversion so they don't have to blame the lockdown. That's my opinion. Well, I think, you know, th there is a valid point of, of public debate. It's a debate that's been around for decades. People have argued, f firstly, people have argued that marijuana should be legal because the costs of having the costs of marijuana being illegal are higher than the benefits, right? So people would say, look, maybe the benefits of marijuana being illegal is that there are fewer people smoking it. Uh, and the people that are smoking it are smoking it less frequently and marijuana is not good for you. So we have less marijuana consumption. That's the benefit of making it illegal. But then people have on, on the opposite side have said, okay, but the costs of this are, you know, you're getting people that are uh, put into prison that are basically harmless. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're getting stoned at home and maybe eating a lot of chips, but they're not out killing people or raping people. They're not out stealing. They're not vandalizing. And you're putting these people in prison and there's high policing costs. There's high court costs. And so there, there's a, a kind of a harm to having marijuana illegal, right? And so after, so, and, and, and you have the same argument with, with other drugs. People will say, look, let's just legalize uh, heroin and let's legalize everything and make sure that the recipients are receiving it safely. And if it's legal, the price will come down. And I, I'm inclined to agree with that. If, if, if these, uh, I once saw a comparison of coffee with cocaine and the kind of the production costs, right? So if your cup of coffee at Starbucks is, is let's say two, $2 and 50 cents, you know, there's the, the 15 cents is going to the farmer and then 20 cents to this level, this level, this level, right? So you've got the components of the $2 and 50 cents, but cocaine could be as cheap and affordable as coffee if it was legal <laughs> you, know, right, you yeah. could get you could get a, a nice cocaine a nice quantity of cocaine for two dollars and fifty cents but because it's illegal it's more expensive fair, yeah, fair, fair enough but here here's what's wrong with with uh, if, if to the extent that Bonnie Henry or anybody else is trying to run away from the harms of the lockdown by now arguing that uh, uh, drugs should be legalized, that is, I think that's cowardly evasion of the harms of the lockdown. I think it's a side tangent. I mean, yes, it's a valid point. It's a valid mm -hmm. point of public policy debate. Should we legalize all drugs? Yes or no? Why or why not? Fine. It's it's a public debate. And it, that would be decided federally by the federal government controls for the whole country, which substances are illegal. And that's not up to provinces to uh, to make a decision that, you know, BC is going to legalize marijuana and, and Alberta is going to make it illegal. I mean, no, that's federal law. So perhaps Bonnie Henry is upset with, with federal law and perhaps she thinks that drugs should be legalized. Okay, fine. She's a citizen of Canada. She has the right to you know, advocate right. for drug legalization, but that's running away from the, the deaths that her lockdown policies are causing in British Columbia by uh, people dying of, uh, of opioid deaths. And again, I would ask the question, how could uh, forcing people into unemployment, poverty, despair, and, uh, and isolation, how could that not result in increases in drug and alcohol use? Mm -hmm. I think this is actually mentioned in the report as well. Uh, not the numbers specifically, but the, of course, the repercussions. I think it's been noted in all 
discussions that the Justice Center has been uh, <clears throat> doing in the reports and in podcasts like this. So, I mean, that's the thing. We we see a lot of similarities in this reports uh, to what the, the two that you've issued previously. And <clears throat> I guess there's just there's a sort of an exercise of putting this all on the record as well. Uh, because, of course, uh, now everybody's talking about, well, we're facing a second wave and are we going to shut down again? I know in the United States, it's such a politicized issue because of their election down there. It hasn't really affected us quite the same way. However, there have been threats. And, uh, of course, Quebec has its mandatory mask law, which has uh, been in the news lately because of some guy that uh, got tackled and tased in a Tim Hortons. I don't know if you saw that story at all. He refused to wear a mask, and so the police came along, and they got into an argument, and the guy got tackled and tased, and it's all on video, and it's like, oh, man. And, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, of course, we got to mention that guy that got shot to death. In Ontario. In Ontario. Yeah, yeah you read and that. And now we have police investigating police, which is just uh, – I, I do not comprehend why in this country or in, in any province uh, you have these uh, very unaccountable, non-accountable – police investigating police type of situations. I mean, whoever's in charge of the investigation, it's totally legitimate to have police representation on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but to say that police only, and, um, and now we've got the secrecy. And so it's going to be the police who are going to release, decide what information to release or not release and when to release it. And the yeah. police are completely in charge of the investigation of a man that the police shot to death. It, it is just appalling. And I, I do not comprehend why the, the laws are not changed to mandate uh, civilian oversight uh, over the police. Yeah, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a good topic for another show. I just want to mention that uh, comment that one of the Justice Center people had made uh, in an email exchange. I don't, I don't have his permission to say his name, but his comment was, why did the police follow this guy home? I mean, why didn't they just let him cool down, you know? Uh, he has an argument about a mask in a store, and uh, he's fuming. They follow him because he wasn't wearing a mask, and the guy ends up dead. Um, now, I would, I would hope, I would hope mm -hmm. that the police had uh, good grounds, solid grounds for doing that, insofar as if the guy had assaulted somebody in the store, if mm -hmm. he had hit somebody or punched somebody, that is criminal conduct. And I right. think if, you've, if you're uh, – if you've engaged in criminal conduct, then quite appropriately, the the police should follow you home and be the same. Or you know, if he had shoplifted, but yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if it was just an oral, um, what do you call it? An oral, an argument, <laughs> an oral mm -hmm. altercation <laughs> over yeah. mask wearing. Yeah, it's um, right now we just don't know, though. I mean, because as you mentioned, you know, there's a kind of a veil of secrecy over this. Totally unacceptable yeah. for people to be kept. In the dark, uh, whenever there's a police shooting, there needs to be some form of oversight that is not police only. Police cannot be entirely in charge of this kind of an investigation where, where the police have shot somebody to death. Especially so, in such a hot button issue, you know, right now. Uh, but anyway. Well, it just seems it's, it, it seems that the uh, police have a, a limited amount of, uh, of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, just like anybody else. And if they're not putting that energy towards protecting the lives and property of people, if they're not, you know, trying to prevent break and enters and vandalisms, then they shift all of their attention to catching speeders and, and going after people not wearing masks. I mean, they need direction from 
elected leaders to to channel their energies into the right direction. And I don't think they're getting that because the politicians currently in July of 2020 are fixated on this virus as though it's the only problem in the world and as though we can safely and, and easily and justifiably ignore everything else, which is, in my view, very foolish and wrongheaded. Mm -hmm. Well, I, on that regard, I think that we can actually uh, mention uh, BC and give it a, some praise because they have not had sort of the draconian reaction to uh, public policies that other jurisdictions like Ontario have had. You know, they haven't had incidents anyway. They seem to be focusing on more of an educational approach, which always to my mind is, oh, okay, so we've got this law that's unenforceable, so let's just not enforce it. But still, they haven't uh, had the incidents and they have allowed the protests Again, though, they deserve the same criticism other public health officers do for not criticizing the uh, protests following the um, the incidents down in the United States. You know, they, they, they just all seem to back off. Actually, to, to, to Bonnie Henry's credit, I was told by one of the researchers that she did, in fact, contrary to other chief medical officers and contrary to politicians in other provinces, that uh, Bonnie Henry did say – in respect to the anti-racism protests that uh, she said that the failure to follow social distancing was a bad thing. So uh, maybe she is uh, a notch above the other chief medical officers, because if, okay. if that's correct, then I would say, well, good for her. We certainly didn't see that in Alberta where uh, Dina Hinshaw, you know, did not uh, denounce the absence of social distancing in a province where people are getting $1,200 COVID tickets for, you know, ridiculous things like, like peacefully exercising their charter freedoms on a public sidewalk or at the legislature. Mm. Uh, and, and then we had the anti-racism protests with, uh, with nary a word from the chief medical officer that, uh, the failure to social distance was, was in any way problematic. Okay. Check your email. I've just sent you a form to join her fan club. <laughs> I will point out, and this is actually mentioned in your report, they did open schools there as well. On a yeah, very BC, basis. BC yeah. is ahead of Alberta, which is... Yeah. Uh, so there we go. I think we've got, I think we've sort of answered our own question here. <laughs> is it but you know, this, you, you, talked to, you talked about a less severe uh, enforcement. This is a, this yeah. is a very valid, this isn't a valid uh, charter issue. The onus is on the politicians to justify demonstrably that the lockdowns have caused all of these good things to happen and, and that, that, that those good things outweigh the harms. Mm. Now, the onus in, let's say, you know, Alberta or Ontario, where we've had more fines handed out, the onus would be on the government, including the chief medical officer who has an obligation to think about charter rights and freedoms. They're not, right. uh, you know, every government official, not just the elected politicians, but every government official must consider charter rights and freedoms. And so the onus uh, in Alberta and Ontario compared to BC is to say, well, what if, what if you had not had all of these fines and enforcement, would the spread of the virus been any different? And the onus is on the politicians to say, oh yeah, well, it's because we were uh, engaging in all these uh, all this enforcement that it actually made a difference. Uh, yes. Could they do that though? And, and from what you've read, I mean, obviously, you know, we brought up several times this idea of herd immunity, the spread of the virus 
is different on the second time around if you've achieved herd immunity the first time around. But can be, yeah, unless it's a totally different virus. I'm glad you brought that up because the the in the newspapers every day there there's all this talk about increases in cases. Mm-hmm. And curiously, the media are not reporting on the fact that the deaths are declining. If you look at the daily deaths, depending on the jurisdiction, right? So in in a larger jurisdiction with with tens of millions of people, you know, you might have several hundred deaths a day. In a smaller jurisdiction, you might have single digits. But there's kind of a curve there, and the deaths go up and up and up. Uh, so in in Italy, the deaths peaked at the end of March. So the the virus got in there earlier than uh, than than other countries. Uh, in the United States, the deaths uh, peaked. So the number of daily deaths goes up and up and up into about mid April, and then it declines and it declines, declines, declines. It continues to decline. So the number of COVID deaths in the United States now, as we're approaching the end of July is negligible. It's tiny compared to where it was in April. So, and it's the same in in every jurisdiction. You've got your daily deaths climb up to uh, a certain point, and this has happened uh, in some places in March, in some places in April, in some places in May. You've got this upwards, and then you reach your peak deaths, okay? So in a smaller jurisdiction, that might be you know, 15 people died of COVID on a certain day. In a bigger jurisdiction, would be, you know, 325 people died of COVID. And then it goes down and it goes down, 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 down. Why does it go down? Well, it's very simple. It's because the COVID is a threat to 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds and 70-year-olds who are already sick and have underlying health conditions. And it is not a threat to children, to youth. It's not a threat to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, unless you are immunocompromised. And if you are, you'll know who you are. And in that case, you're threatened by all kinds of things, not just COVID. So you've got the COVID has just gone through the whole population. And now that the lockdowns are ending, well, of course, you're going to see increased cases. But if you're a COVID case and you're 20 years old and you've got a sore throat for a day, who cares? Mm. Right. It's only so we have to look at the death statistics and the media are not reporting on the fact, although you can dig this up if you, you go to any jurisdiction, you look at the deaths right after they peaked in March or April. The death rates are going down, 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 down to uh, a small fraction of what they were. Why? Because COVID does not kill uh, children, youth, and healthy adults are not killed by it. Mm. Uh, in in fact, you know, if you have a hundred COVID cases, you're going to have you know ninety nine or ninety five or ninety seven or ninety two of those people uh, of those hundred people are asymptomatic, and yet the media are breathlessly you know, fear-mongering about the huge increases in COVID cases uh, and not talking about the deaths. I mean, they they could at least talk about both. I mean, if you really want to talk Mm -hmm. about COVID cases, okay, go ahead. Uh, But they're not, they're not talking about the fact that the the deaths are coming down. And so what, what is happening now is that the population immunity, uh, the herd immunity is getting closer and closer to where it should be. And it's a good thing, herd immunity. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I noticed that, uh, I guess in Canada, I don't think that the numbers have been juked the same way they've been in the United States, or they appear to be in the United States. There's such a political issue down there now, as I had mentioned earlier, that uh, we're seeing all kinds of media stories about 
tests coming back positive to people that never even took a test or, you know, uh, odd things like that. You know, the, the, um, the CDC, I think, had its uh, statistical reporting moved off to the, the, a different jurisdiction because uh, they were suspected of, of juking the numbers, that kind of thing. I don't think we've seen that in Canada, have we at all? Uh, we have. Uh, Jerry, have? Jerry Dunham, who, who died in June, he was the 46-year-old father of two girls, age of six and nine. Uh, he needed a pacemaker. But Jason Kenney and uh, Dina Henshaw decided that that was not essential. Even though his heart was uh, operating at 25% capacity, he needed the pacemaker surgery just to stay alive. Uh, and, and even, you know, also to be able to get back to work. I mean, mm. when you're in that state of health, you can't, you, you simply cannot work. You cannot hold down any job. Uh, so Dina Henshaw and Jason Kenney, the chief medical officer and the premier, canceled surgeries and also canceled the the booking of new surgeries. So he did not get his pacemaker surgery, which was medically necessary and urgent. He then got a heart attack. And um, sadly, even though 911 was called and the paramedics came and they, they, they did their thing and got his heart back, you know, beating again, but the time delay was too big. And so he had oxygen deprivation and effectively died, even though they were able to kind of restart the heart, so to speak, but he was effectively dead and um, horribly sad uh, story. And the, this happened just a few days before Father's Day. Uh, there's a uh, post-millennial column that I wrote on the, on Jerry Dunham. And uh, if you go to post-millennial and type in Jerry Dunham, D-U-N, like Dunham, D-U-N-H-A-M, uh, the, the column's called uh, Jerry Dunham was killed by the lockdown, not by COVID. Now, here's what's interesting, and I've heard this uh, from You're going to bring it back to statistics, right? Back to statistics. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. So, so he died, and then, um, and then one, of the, one of the nurses uh, said to the mother of his children, uh, said, well, can, can we put this down as a COVID death? Because, you know, there's you know, the lockdown and this and that. And, you know, it's because of, you know, this whole COVID pandemic that, you know, he didn't get his pacemaker or whatever. Mm. And uh, the, mother of, of the, the mother of the daughter said, no, absolutely not. He didn't have COVID. He died because he got a heart attack. And the heart, he wouldn't have had the heart attack if he'd had the medically necessary pacemaker surgery that thanks to Dina Henshaw and Jason Kenney, uh, he didn't get his pacemaker surgery mm -hmm. because of the lockdown, because Dina Henshaw decided to cancel 22,000 surgeries and prevent the booking of more surgeries. And I've heard this over and over from different sources that there, there's a pressure, there's a kind of psychological, emotional pressure that's prevalent in the, in the medical system to, um, to put as much as possible, whenever possible, whenever you get away with it, put it down as a COVID death. This was also publicly admitted by senior health officials in Italy and in the United States, where they've said, yeah, if uh, if you've got COVID in your body, we're going to list it as a COVID death. Well, th so those stats are not reliable because if you die yeah. of a heart attack, well, maybe you do have COVID in your body. Uh, I could get killed in a car accident tomorrow and maybe they do an autopsy and they find I have COVID in my body, even though you know, I've been asymptomatic or whatever. It's not a COVID death if I die in a car accident. But yet if there's COVID in my body, the authorities will list it as a COVID death. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, I think, what's leading to, I guess, an awful lot of conspiracy theorists, you know, speculating that the motives for this are for you know this and that, you know, the fact that they're they are juking the stats in all these jurisdictions. I did want to mention a little bit about British Columbia and its stats because I, I know a little bit. I followed their stats quite closely at the beginning of the pandemic. They were not doing a lot of testing at, at the time it was reaching its height. Their policy was to test uh, frontline workers. Uh, there was a shortage of tests, and so they were rationing these things, I would say, appropriately. However, that would lead to different stats. Uh, that would lead to, uh, I guess, uh, a lower caseload. Uh, they were they, There's a good chance they were hit early uh, because Vancouver is such a terminus for uh, people coming from China, it's probably the key point in Canada for people coming in China. Yet, they're telling us out of BC that the first cases they traced back were traced to Washington State and not to China, which I find a little odd. And I don't know whether that is because uh, they have uh, limited their tests. Of course, Canada as a jurisdiction wasn't... Uh, scoping out people coming from overseas for a long, long time. So, I mean, I, I, in praising BC's response, well, okay, I can understand what they did, but I don't necessarily give their statistics a whole lot of credence because of that. It looked odd to me simply because in the rest of the world, it was areas where there was a large influx of people from China uh, that the area seemed to spread, in particular Italy. There, there was no... Uh, Garment District, uh, where the Chinese worked up in northern Italy, that uh, some people consider a flashpoint. And in Canada, that should have been in British Columbia, and we didn't see it that way. So I'll just toss that over to you and, uh, you know, comment, stats, BC, go ahead. <laughs> well, the more the more testing that we do, the more cases that we uncover. Right, yeah. And the, the sad thing is the ignorance and this is not and it's not a, a guilty it's not an ignorance that, that, that can be helped but most of our public policy decisions in the last four months are based on speculation and, and theory but they're not based on hard facts because nobody knows uh, if I was to question under oath uh, any of the chief medical officers and ask them you know in on January 1st 2020, how many people in British Columbia uh, had COVID, right? And the, the answer mm. would be, we, we don't know. Uh, how many people had already had COVID in 2019? Well, we don't know. Uh, you know, you could... Right, yeah. The, 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 the ignorance is is huge. And again, I don't mean that in a pejorative or, or accusatory sense, but just in a, in a factually descriptive way that you have ignorance of what is going on. You have ignorance of the number of people that have already had it. Mm-hmm. And even now, we um, we don't have an antibody test. So say in Alberta, for example, you could go test it, get tested for COVID. Uh, the test would tell you with, not with 100% accuracy, but with a considerable degree of, of accuracy. And there are false positives as well. You could test positive and not have it. But uh, right, so it's not 100%. But it'll tell you like right now at this moment, you've got COVID, yes or no. Okay, fine. Mm. Can tell you that. They're not doing a test on who has already had it. And if there was such a test, the one of the important questions would be how accurate and how reliable is it? I mean, can you have COVID and and then have antibodies that are not detected by that particular test? I mean, how accurate is that test? Right, yeah. So the only 
in in my view, the only reliable thing you can look look at is is the death stats, and then for reasons we've just discussed, even those stats are not reliable at all because there's massive overreporting for political reasons, and you know the senior public official in Italy. This is in the BC report, the Ontario report, the Alberta report. It's the same quote. Senior Italian health official says that a lot of the Italian, the, the majority of the Italian COVID deaths are not actually COVID deaths, right? So even mm-hmm. there, when they say, well, you know, Italy was hit hard, there were 30,000 or, you know, 40,000 people died of COVID. That's not true. That's not accurate. That's not reliable. So the death stats, having said that, even though the death stats are flawed and unreliable, in my view, they are a more reliable thing to look at than the number of cases, which, again, we're, we're, we're only testing a small fraction of the population, and we don't know who's already had it or mm. not. Right. Okay. Uh, one of the things that was in the BC report now, I actually, when I flagged it, I didn't actually go back and check the Alberta and the Ontario reports. Maybe you could refresh my memory on it. One of the things that I found interesting because of the makeup of BC in that it has a high concentration of the population in the Vancouver area, and then you've got you've got Vancouver and then you've got the rest of the province. It was the proportional response based on the infection in certain jurisdictions. In other words, they had a high rate, I think it was in the something called the coastal health jurisdiction, and then uh, the rest of the province gets hit with this lockdown. Is this uh, simply a function of law, the way they had to do it, or is this uh, was this just overkill in your view? I mean, what what would you say, uh, you know, about this proportional response in for different jurisdictions? Well, British Columbia is an interesting political jurisdiction, no. uh, like so many others in the world, and it, it does group together. You know, you've got Vancouver Island, which uh, is different mentality, different culture, different whatever from the mainland. And in the mainland, you've got uh, different culture, different economy, different way of life, different ethnic makeup. Uh, it's almost like greater Vancouver versus the rest of BC uh, are almost like, like two, you know, as, as different as um, two different Canadian provinces. Right, so, yeah. you know, more, uh, this is all well and good. It's not a problem. It's an accident of history, and you have these accidents of history all over the world where you get one political jurisdiction that has very different uh, uh, economic and cultural and ethnic and political uh, considerations. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it still boils down to this lockdown measures that violate our freedom as Canadians, our charter freedoms to move, to travel, to associate, to assemble peacefully, to worship, to practice our faith, any lockdown measure that violates any of these fundamental freedoms has to be justified. And the, the key component of that justification is that it um, it's doing more good than harm. And also that there's a direct connection so that you know, say you take mask wearing, right? If if you want to have a law mandating mask wearing, the onus is on the government to demonstrate that wearing masks uh, is directly connected to the virus not spreading. You know, mm. and that and that the virus not spreading is a good thing rather than a bad thing, because you know, get back to this uh, population immunity question. So, were the lockdowns in BC justified? Well, 
Probably not. The title of the report, which is at www.jccf.ca, benefits assumed, harms ignored. And this is the pattern that we see all across Canada. The uh, politicians will tell you with great pride that they have saved thousands of lives. But where's the evidence? How, do, how would we know, how would they show that this is in fact true if you've got a virus that is spreading? You know, obviously, they, they didn't keep the virus out of the nursing homes, which is where you have a high concentration of people that are vulnerable to COVID because they are elderly and very sick. If you're an elderly person who is healthy, you will be living at home. You will not be in a nursing home. The fact that you're in a nursing home is because you have one or more of cancer, emphysema, heart disease, dementia, whatever. You've got serious health conditions. So, you know, Bonnie Henry and every other chief medical officer failed to keep COVID out of the nursing homes. So COVID did kill the vulnerable people. The rest of the population that is not threatened by COVID, uh, how did it save lives to force healthy people to refrain from uh, social interaction and business interaction? And did we even reduce the spread by forcing all the shoppers into some larger box stores, right? If they had just kept all the businesses open, if you'd wanted paint, you would have gone into a paint store. If you wanted jewelry, you would have gone into a jewelry store. If you wanted clothing, you would have gone into a clothing store. But instead, they shut down everything and force everybody into Walmart. So you get a much higher concentration of people because you, now you have to go to Walmart for everything right. as opposed to leaving all the stores open. So if you're trying to get people to not mix and mingle and trying to reduce the spread, you don't do that by forcing everybody to shop at Walmart. You do that by leaving all the stores open. So the lockdown measures, I mean, how would the politicians know? How would they prove that shutting down restaurants helped to save the lives of vulnerable people in nursing homes. I mean, at the, those people are not going to restaurants. The people going mm. to restaurants are going to be uh, the healthy adults and their kids that are out and about where, again, it's not a problem for the virus to spread amongst the healthy people. You're trying to protect the vulnerable. So how did shutting down restaurants save lives? And, the answer to all these questions that they're going to be able to say is, is that they don't know. It is speculation to suggest that the lockdown saved lives. Right. Well, on the geographical question, I guess I was kind of saying the same thing. You know, how is a nursing home in Dawson Creek or Prince George, you know, affected when the outbreak is in Vancouver, you know, uh, and is there a better way maybe of doing this so that we don't harm everybody the same in a province? I mean, it, there seem to be in Canada kind of a domino effect with the lockdowns province by province. It was like, okay, I think uh, BC and uh, Alberta announced certain things at the same time, didn't they? They had a couple of joint press conferences, you know, so they announced these things at the same time, then Ontario does it. I don't remember the exact order, but it seemed to be like big blocks rather than, you know, saying, okay, we've got an outbreak here and maybe we can just sort of isolate that and uh, not shut down the whole province. I, I've just, it, it seems to me in BC, it was pretty obvious that, you know, they had the outbreak in Vancouver. That's where the deaths were. And yet they shut down the whole they province. They shut down so, the whole province. Yeah. But it's still the, the other big question that, that Bonnie Henry has not answered 
and, and nor have other chief medical officers, is at what point in time did we shift the goal away from flattening the curve? Because the under, what we were told in March was we cannot stop the spread of the virus, mm. which I think is accurate. And this is why you can only slow it down. And so the idea was we're going to manage this so that we don't suddenly have you know, 359,000 people that all need to be hospitalized because they all have COVID at the same time. So we're going to control the spread so that we don't have, we don't overwhelm the hospitals with this big wave. So that's the justification for violating our charter freedoms to move and travel and associate and assemble. That's the justification for throwing people into uh, unemployment and poverty and despair. That's the justification for seeing increases in uh, anxiety, depression, suicide, uh, drug overdoses, family violence, etc. It's all predicated on flattening the curve. Well, here we are in July, and now it's just a reduce the spread, reduce the spread, reduce the spread. Why? Why are we? Why are we trying to reduce the spread of a virus that we now know? is not a threat to children or youth or healthy adults. And we don't hear the chief medical officers talking about population immunity, herd immunity, which as medical doctors, they should at least talk about it. If, 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 they, if, if it's their opinion that, you know, what was settled medical opinion six months ago, and I've talked to a lot of doctors, this is settled medical opinion that you defeat the virus by acquiring population immunity. So for the virus to spread amongst people that are not vulnerable, that are not going to be killed by it, for people that are not going to suffer symptoms, or if they do, it'll be minor and they'll just have a sore throat for a day, that that's a good thing. Okay, if Bonnie Henry and and the other chief medical officers uh, think that this is unscientific and that herd immunity is a bad thing to be avoided, they should say so directly and they should explain uh, you know, what is the basis for their uh, departure from what uh, up until now uh, has been settled medical opinion that population immunity is a good thing that we should strive after? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I've seen many people theorize on why the uh, medical officers are acting this way. And, and some people say that they just seem to like the limelight. And so uh, they seem to like the limelight and wielding the power. And uh, that's, I guess, not unreasonable because it is a an attractive thing. They are human, and part of uh, yeah. part of, part of human nature is is a love for power and and being able to control and dominate other people. And we've seen this dark side of human nature with all the, you know, when you get somebody, some senior gets dish, handed an eight hundred dollar ticket for walking a dog by by himself in a park. Mm. Uh, one of the justice center's clients is a teenager who was playing basketball by himself. Not violating social distancing, not not violating any rules. In fact, it was the it was the the bylaw officer uh, giving him the six hundred dollar ticket. That was the violation of social distancing. But we have this yeah. dark side to human nature, and I I don't I'm not going to try to get into the hearts you know the heart and mind of Bonnie Henry and and know you know what what's going on inside of her. But I will say with human nature generally. Uh, the reason we have constitutional freedoms is to protect us from the dark side of human nature that does seek to uh, control and dominate other people. Right. So okay. just, I'll leave it as a general human nature comment, right? Because I, I just, I don't think it's it's right or fair to try to get into her mind or her heart uh, per se. And, you know, whether she loves the limelight or not, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Well, we'll leave this topic for a little bit. Just to re-emphasize that you can download this report in PDF form on the Justice Center website. I'll put a link in the show notes below uh, so that you can grab it and take a look at it. At this point, I, I want to mention that you're not going to be here next week. We're going to have a guest or somebody subbing in for you because you- Jay Cameron. Jay, Jay Cameron, Cameron yes. litigation director. Right, yeah. And we're going to be talking about property rights related yes. to to guns. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, in yeah, so. uh, in the month of May, the federal cabinet uh, issued a, an order in council, a cabinet directive to suddenly render 1,500 different kinds of firearms illegal. And I should say, I'm not a firearms owner. Uh, I don't really have a, a plan or intention or desire to become a firearms owner, but I'm very concerned as a citizen that the government can suddenly take legally acquired property from honest law-abiding citizens who have legally purchased that property and when the government says we're taking it, uh, that threatens me as somebody who's not a firearms owner. If the government has the power to do that in one area or sphere, and if that's unchecked, then what protects my property, my home, my car, my possessions, my bank account from also just being seized uh, arbitrarily by government? So huge issue that uh, Jay Cameron is going to discuss next week. And you, of course, will be on holiday, which I will note John has four children. And, only four. Uh, only four. Only four. And uh, I come from a family of four children. And I do recall piling into a car uh, as a young child with my siblings and a dog into the back seat, four of us, uh, and then uh, the parents in the front, heading off across uh, BC a lot of the times. What are you planning for your holiday? Well, it sounds a little bit like that. We're leaving the dog at home, oh, okay. and uh, uh, we are in fact heading out to BC. I'm uh, I've I've asked Bonnie Henry for a personal visits so I can pay my respects. Just kidding, I have not. <laughs> but um, you get the signed poster. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite different. When I was a kid, we traveled through BC, and I remember there's no air conditioning in the car. The best you could hope for would be open windows. That's which, pretty good though. Open windows are open great. Open windows, yeah. um, which are also helpful for diluting the secondhand smoke that you're inhaling from your smoking parents. Cause you know, in the seventies, <laughs> yeah, the majority of people were smoking and well, nobody, my father did, yeah. my father did, nobody but, cared about secondhand smoke. I mean, uh, Yes, we did. We opened the windows. We opened the windows. <laughs> Do you remember those little fly windows that we used to have? You know, you'd turn them and they would suck out everything out of one side and blow in air on the other. Ah, here we are, boomers talking about their childhood. Yes. So now we have, uh, you know, air-conditioned vehicle, which I assume that they existed in the 1970s, but probably it was only a multimillionaire that would have an, an air-conditioned vehicle. Mm -hmm. It was not par for the course for, for anybody else. And now Cars it's that like had, standard. You can't, yeah, that's right. I, I don't even know if you can buy a new car that does not have air conditioning. So, yeah. so now the kids, uh, when I, you know, compare and contrast. So my, my kids will be traveling in an air conditioned vehicle and they'll all have their, uh, individual entertainment device, so to speak, in some way, shape or form, or they'll have their, their, their music, their iPod, their headphones or their computer games, whatever. It's, it's air conditioned and there's no secondhand smoke. Uh, and they're all wearing seatbelts uh, should the car crash. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, we were, we had no electronics and we're breathing in secondhand smoke and we're not wearing seat belts Cause I think it was just the front two, the seats really, if you were the, the driver and the front seat uh, passenger were the only people that were required to wear seat belts or who did so the rest of the car is like, ah, you're free game. I don't think they, <laughs> I think they weren't required as least, at least what I remember. They were there definitely though. You they know, were there. Usually got lost, tucked under in a. <laughs> Crimp in the seat, you're like, what is that hard thing in my butt? Oh, that's the seatbelt. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's that. But so, yeah, you're heading to... into BC area. That's great. Yeah, BC is yes. always a great trip for kids, you know. But and here's I... the thing. Sorry, Go I was going to say the uh, the thing about kids, you know, uh, it doesn't sound in all your list of the great things that they have, they don't have a bathroom in that car, do you? No. That's, so, you're going to be frequent stops for that, of course. Regular yeah. stops. Regular yeah. stops for that, and uh, hopefully, I've I've heard there's some fanatics in uh, in British Columbia that will vandalize Alberta cars. So I'm uh, I'm hopeful. Yeah, just just, just as a you know as a pro, you know we we care so deeply about human life that we'll vandalize your car just to tell you that you should have stayed in Alberta. Uh, I heard this was a problem a few months ago, but hopefully it's uh, subsided and uh, people have I guess acquired some more sanity and let go of some of their hate. So I'm hoping to come back to Alberta with a good, uh, with a, with a vehicle that has not been uh, uh, vandalized yeah. by uh, some uh, covid uh, vigilante type. What do you covid vigilante type? Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I heard those stories too. I, I thought it was just urban legend, but I guess it was reported on the it's news anecdotal. at some point. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, you here's the thing. You could add this. You could add this to the, the harms of the lockdown is, you know, yeah. vandalized vehicles. Well, the, uh, BC relies an awful lot on tourism, you know, and uh, I don't see things like that, you know, helping out their economy at all. So maybe they're, uh, maybe they're, there's going to be people that are going to be permanently damaged by this lockdown. You know, they're just going to be in a panic for the rest of their lives. Which That's very sad. Yeah. And there, there are, there, there are people that are, they got so frightened in March and uh, sadly, they have not looked at the facts that have emerged and that, you know, what was said in March is not just false, it's demonstrably false. Mm. And uh, I just, I hope that more and more people will just check out the facts and uh, not suffer in a state of fear. Because I, uh, it's it, it's sad. I feel sorry for people that are living in fear 24 hours a day that are so scared of dying that they've forgotten how to live. And right. uh, that's not where we should be at. Well, that, that's interesting. We got a little segue here, actually, because we were, you know, talking about your kids and traveling, and we're now we're back to the COVID thing. Our research department, which I will give a shout out to Marnie, who does uh, our communications and also sends us uh, links of interesting stories to compile for uh, various uses throughout the center. She sent a link through this morning from LifeSite about the traumatization of children. I don't know if you saw that one, but I mean, you're talking about permanent damage. I mean, these, these kids don't really have an opportunity because to, I guess, balance facts with the situation, they have to trust to the adults. And so there's going to be some permanent scarring here. I would draw a comparison, I guess, to my own childhood and the nuclear nightmares that I had. You know, we were we were terrified to death of uh, first strike nuclear capability from the Soviets, and uh, you know, I think that was uh, that carried on until the fall of the Soviet Union, at which point uh, global warming became the 
new nightmare. I, I guess that that should be remarked as well. You know that. Uh, we, well, yeah, and really, I, it, it's a fair question to say how could it not be traumatizing for mm. kids if their parents are in a state of fear about dying of a virus? Which again, the the fear was warranted in March when we didn't know what was going on. But mm. in April, May, June, July, th- there's not a factual basis for that fear that, again, unless you are uh, immunocompromised, in which case you're threatened by a lot of things, not just COVID, but mm. unless you have a serious underlying health condition, respiratory condition, or if you're elderly and already very, very sick and already not that far away from death to begin with, right? Because if you're in a nursing home, I mean, the average uh, lifespan in Ontario nursing homes is 12 months, right, for people mm. People in a nursing home in Ontario, the average, uh, your average life expectancy once you're in a nursing home is 12 months. So unless you're in those categories, you have nothing to fear and you're in greater danger of, uh, dying while driving your car to work. If you're lucky enough to have a job or driving your car to the grocery store, you face a greater risk of death than you do of, um, from dying of COVID. But kids, I think, respond primarily to their parents' attitude. Mm. Uh, There's a study I read some years ago about how in a situation where there's a a major flood, okay, with just massive, you know, rain, rainfall and hurricane overflowing rivers, what have you. And there are some families where they, uh, you know, the parents and the kids got onto the roof and, you know, the flood's coming and then they got into a boat and they, uh, you know, with probably lost most of their possessions. And in the cases where the parents were absolutely terrified of what was going on, which of course, totally justifiable response, right? Mm -hmm. But where the parents were absolutely terrified, the kids also, it was like, oh yeah, the kids were traumatized by it because it was this horrific uh, experience to, you know, almost drown and to lose your home and so on. Um, But in in the other cases where the parents reacted very calmly to this, and it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we're just all going to climb onto the roof now and we're going to wait for a boat. Oh, look, there's a boat. Oh, we're all getting into the boat. The kids were not traumatized and they talked about it like it was just some crazy adventure, you know? Right. So kids take the cues from their parents. And uh, I would think that, you know, yeah, for in in homes where the parents were terrified and uh, living in a state of fear, that was probably not good for the kids. But conversely, I think in homes where the parents looked at the facts and did not live in a state of fear, kids are not traumatized. But, you know, how could it not be traumatizing to be told that you cannot meet up with your friends uh, because there's this, you know, horrible, deadly disease going around? And they kept the schools closed for a long, long time. In Alberta, they kept it closed for the rest of the year. Schools were closed March 15th and, and never reopened for the remainder of the school year, even though uh became very apparent very early on that COVID does not threaten children. Yeah, this was schools could have schools could have could have reopened uh, after a week or two, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, big mistake. Yeah, and I think we've mentioned that in the past. You know the the effects of that shutdown. I think will be well, they're historic, and they will be reverberating for years. And that's, I think, part of the um, the purpose of getting these reports done on various jurisdictions. There's a lot of crossover, but, uh, you know, the fact that it's getting on the record here now, the fact that it's emphasizing the fact that these people have to answer these questions eventually, 
that's the real uh, important fact of uh, issuing these reports. Okay, well, I think we can probably call an end to the uh, episode 29 of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks a lot, John, and I hope you have a great vacation. You deserve it, and so do I, but I don't get one. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.